Well, today is Halloween, or on the Christian calendar, All Hallows' Eve. It was believed that on this night, the veil between the physical and the spiritual becomes very thin, allowing for entities like ghosts and goblins and evil spirits to cross from the supernatural into the natural world. And sorcery is the attempt to tap into or to manipulate these spirit beings in ways apart from God and his will. For most Americans, tonight is an occasion to wear costumes and eat candy and throw a party. But in the dark world of the occult, Halloween is a prime time for sorcery and seances. It's the center stage for evil practices. And in Acts chapter 8, we have a story that features a man who would have been right at home on Halloween. This man was a sorcerer, a wizard. He lived in Samaria and had consorted with demons and demonic powers. His name was Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician. You remember, with the stoning of Stephen, Jerusalem was no longer a safe city for Christians. Rabbi Saul, the instigator of Stephen's execution, was waging war against the church. Yet as believers fled the city, they took the gospel with them. God used Saul's persecution to spark evangelism and to push the spread of Christianity. And among those who moved out was Stephen's fellow deacon, Philip. He went north into the hills of Samaria and he preached the gospel of Jesus to the locals. The lame were healed, demons were exorcised, miracles occurred. And this caught the attention of the local witch doctor, a man named Simon. We start this morning in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. This Simon obviously had an ego, claiming to be someone great. But apparently he had backed it up in certain ways. Luke notes, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Now, either through demonic power or through sleight of hand, Simon had been able to dazzle a crowd. The locals were ignorant of spiritual matters, certainly from a biblical perspective. So by default, they attributed his amazing powers to the hand of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries, for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. We're not sure whether Simon's faith was sincere or bogus, But he was impressed by Philip's miracles. Again, sorcery is the practice of tapping into spiritual power apart from God, other than God. And Simon had been a practitioner of sorcery. In a former life, he had relied on black magic and demons and paganism and astrology and psychic powers. Call Simon the Harry Potter of Samaria. Simon had coveted spiritual power regardless of its source. 
You know, I'd imagine that much of Simon's so-called power was nothing but illusion and deception. He had a few magic tricks. How do I know? Well, because he was amazed at Philip's miracles. He could tell they were the real deal. See, Simon knew how to play a crowd. That's why he could see that Philip was legit. Simon Magus knew that Philip's wonders had no other explanation than the hand of God. Now, when the apostles were at Jerusalem, when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John were apostles, and they were representatives of the first church, the church of Jerusalem. And they came to validate the legitimacy of this revival that was sweeping through Samaria. Now, of course, if we stopped reading here, we'd end up confused. For doesn't verse 12 tell us that the Samaritans were already saved? And isn't every believer in Jesus indwelt by the Holy Spirit? What of the Spirit had they not received from Peter and John? Well, verse 16 explains what the Samaritan believers were lacking. We're told, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now recall earlier in Acts, we outlined three experiences that the Bible teaches we can have with the Holy Spirit. He is with us before we're saved. He comes to dwell in us when we're converted, but he also wants to fall upon us with spiritual power. And this often occurs after a person comes to Christ. Some Pentecostals call it the second blessing. The Bible refers to it as the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Just as a believer is baptized or immersed in water, a person baptized in God's Spirit is engulfed in the Holy Spirit's power. You've heard the hymn, Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is like sitting in a dunk tank at the Hallelujah Fest when faith trips the lever and you're suddenly in over your head in Holy Spirit power. I told you I like that dunk tank. See, here's what happened in Samaria. Folks are saved and water baptized as Christians. This is what's meant by the phrase, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But they had no knowledge, no experience of the baptism of the Spirit. He had not yet fallen upon them. The Spirit was in them, but not upon them. And thus, verse 17, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Apparently, Peter and John explained to the Samaritans that God had more for them that there was more to the Spirit's work in their life, that they were entitled not just to a transformed life, but to an empowered life. And Peter's presence here in Samaria was important. For in Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus had promised Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. See, Peter was the doorman that unlocked the gospel to each new racial group who joined the church. The Jews at Pentecost in the beginning, here the Samaritans, and even later, the Gentiles in Caesarea. The apostles and Peter were the continuity that God used to show that we're all one church. Well, verse 18, 
And when Simon saw that through the laying on the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now notice, Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given. That's interesting. That means that there were some discernible signs that accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Was it speaking in tongues? Was it prophecy? In Acts, speaking in unknown tongues often occurs when believers are filled with the Spirit. Not always, but often. Tongues is a type of praise to God. And tongues could have been what Simon witnessed. But whatever the sign, Simon wanted the power. No, I'm not a magician, but I have heard that magicians like to sell their tricks to one another. Perhaps this is why Simon thought that he could purchase the power of God's Spirit. This is where we get the sin of simony. It's the attempt of purchasing the gifts in favor of God. And down through the ages, the church has been guilty. In the Middle Ages, ecclesiastical offices, at times even the forgiveness of sin, were sinfully sold by the Pope and the Roman Catholic hierarchy for monetary amounts. And the sin of simony is still around, sadly. In some churches today, positions and influence are doled out to the largest donors. Folks still try to purchase spiritual clout with money. And such authority is not for sale. God gives it as a gift. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Peter's clear, the ministry and the power of God are not for sale. They're gifts given by God's grace. Well, Peter tells us, or tells Simon, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. You know, usually we think of envy as materialism, as coveting someone's new car, new house, or boat, or whatever. We think of it as materialism rather than as a spiritual sin. But it's also possible to be envious of another person's ministry, even their spiritual gifts. Hey, why does she get to teach the Bible studies? Well, all I'm asked to do is cook meals for sick folks. Or what qualifies him to be an elder in the church and not me? So we can be jealous of spiritual position or spiritual gifts. We need to guard against spiritual envy. This was the sin of Simon of Samaria. As Peter said, he was poisoned by bitterness. Don't let that happen to you. Well, verse 24, then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Simon, but tradition says that he became a leading heretic and an opponent of the early church. Some say it was Simon who founded Gnosticism, the first century heresy later refuted by Paul in Colossians. There were also reports that Simon went mad and died by burying himself alive. I do know that jealousy can become a deep pit from which some people never escape. We need to guard against it. So when they, that is Peter and John, 
had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Through their visit, the apostles had put their stamp of approval on the spiritual awakening that was occurring in Samaria. Imagine how exciting this was for Philip. He's riding on the cutting edge of a revival. He's riding a spiritual wave when he receives some strange orders. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And notice the next words. This is desert. The road to Gaza was like Interstate 16 between Macon and Savannah. (laughs) You ever driven that road? I mean, there is not a more barren and boring stretch of highway on the planet. Notice Philip here is being asked to leave a spiritual revival. I mean, souls are getting saved. Miracles are happening. A church is blossoming of which Peter is, I'm sorry, Philip is the leader. Samaria is where the action is. And yet now God tells Philip to go to an undisclosed location on a lonely road to nowhere. And though this didn't make sense, Philip obeyed. Verse 27, so he arose and went. Apparently, celebrity status or a large ministry wasn't his goal. Philip's ambition was obedience. He was a deacon. He was a servant at heart. All he wanted was to please the Lord. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Now, several facts here emerge about the Ethiopian. First, he was a eunuch. In the oriental courts of antiquity, a queen's male servants were often castrated to protect the queen against sexual advances. This man had fallen victim of that kind of castration. Second, he had great authority. The word Candace or Kandake may have been a title. It literally means royal woman. This man reported to Candace, the queen. Apparently, he was Ethiopia's secretary of commerce. And third, we learn that he hungered for righteousness. He had traveled over 200 miles across Egypt, the hot sands of the Sinai, to Jerusalem, to the holy city, looking for answers, looking for hope. But now he's headed home, so disappointed. All he got from his pilgrimage was a Gideon Bible he took out of the hotel room drawer. And that's what he's reading now when Philip approaches him. So Philip ran to him. And as he encountered the Ethiopian, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Now realize what's going on. When the Holy Spirit leads you to share your faith with someone else, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit's also working on the other guy. The Spirit is working on both ends of the conversation. The angel told Philip to go to Gaza. Now the Spirit is priming the heart of the Ethiopian. 
He's reading the Bible out loud, and Philip recognizes he's reading from Isaiah. In fact, the scripture he happens to be reading speaks prophetically of Jesus Christ. Philip asked him, you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. How's that for an invitation? By this point, I'm sure Philip realized that this encounter was being orchestrated by the hand of God. In fact, the place in the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Philip couldn't have asked for a better launching pad for the gospel. The man's reading Isaiah 53. The Ethiopian was poring over the famous prophecy predicting the suffering servant, the clearest description of the sacrifice of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. It was a divine setup. Obviously, God wanted this man to be saved. In fact, you know, it's a setup when anyone gets saved. You know, we come to God only because he draws us. We say we found God, but actually it's God who finds us. And here God is working in this man's life to bring about his salvation. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Apparently they see a brook or perhaps a pond. And the guy wants to be baptized. And we assume from this episode that baptism in the early church was by immersion, full immersion. If Philip had just sprinkled the Ethiopian, a canteen would have done the job. But they stopped at a body of water because the man knew he needed to be immersed. The Ethiopian had asked, what hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'll never forget one Calvary Chapel baptism we had at the local swimming pool there in Stone Mountain. A woman and her daughter had gotten saved and they were being baptized that day. She had warned me that her husband might be there. He was a tough guy. He was a rough guy. He hadn't been to church in decades. She didn't really know how he would behave. Well, after, the baptism, well, after I baptized the daughter and I was just about to dunk her, I heard a splash. All of a sudden, I looked up and this husband, this tough guy, he had jumped in the pool in his street clothes, hadn't even bothered to take off his socks and shoes. He comes walking over to me in the pool, tears streaming down his face. And I'll never forget what he asked me. He said, what do I need to do to be baptized? Just what the Ethiopian said. And I quoted him, Philip, if you believe in Jesus with all your heart, you may. It was right out of the book of Acts. And he replied, I believe. And I baptized him and his wife together. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. It's amazing. 
I love Philip's response to the man's question, if you believe with all your heart. You see, salvation is by faith, but that faith has to come from your heart. You remember back in James chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle writes, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You see, demons agree with the facts about God. They believe intellectually with their heads. But to believe with your heart is to involve your desire. It's to pledge your allegiance. It's to embrace God's way of living. Saving faith is heart faith, not just head faith. Philip is careful here not to water down the requirements for baptism. Faith has to be sincere. Well, verse 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Of course, this wasn't the end of the story for Philip or the Ethiopian. The African official, he went home, and he shared his faith with his people. He was one of the very first to bring Christianity to the African continent. Even today, a vibrant Christian community exists in Ethiopia that traces its roots to this eunuch. Think of it. A black African was one of Christianity's first missionaries. And what happened to Philip? Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. Apparently, with Philip, God had a little rapture practice. The Lord caught Philip away. The Greek word is harpazo. It means to snatch away. The same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, to describe the rapture of the church. Philip wound up in the coastal town of Azotus, some 35 miles north of the road to Gaza. It was a miracle. And then verse 40 tells us, in passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And I know why he stopped in Caesarea. It's beautiful. Caesarea is this beautiful seaside town. It's just gorgeous. The weather's always nice. I love being in Caesarea. In Acts 21, Paul and his buddies are going to hang out in Caesarea at Philip's house. Apparently, he stayed there with his four daughters. You know, Philip's life became an adventure. Why? Because he dared to follow Jesus Christ. I hope you'll enroll in that same adventure. Well, chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. There's Saul. He's still at it, isn't he? Rabbi Saul was waging a war to silence Christians. And yet his venom had backfired. It had only fanned the flame of the church's witness. They had taken the gospel now to the hills of Samaria, up the coast of Caesarea, and even to Damascus, 140 miles northeast. In turn, Saul took his rage on the road as well. He went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now remember, the first believers in Jesus were Jews under Jewish authority. So here Saul seeks priestly permission to round up the Christians and imprison them back in Jerusalem. But notice here how Christianity gets labeled. Notice it's called the way. And I find that very interesting. 
Christianity isn't just a moral code or a set of of doctrines or certainly not a religious observance. It's a way of life. It's a way to live. It's a way to relate to God and a way to relate to one another. Christianity is the way. Today, Saul's vicious attack on Christianity would qualify as a hate crime. Years ago, two Northeastern University professors, they did a study on hate crimes in America. And they concluded that 60% of the perpetrators of hate crimes are just thrill seekers, just insecure people trying to act macho. 35% of the perpetrators are turf defenders, the kind of people that throw rock at a house when a family of a different race moves into the block. But 5% of the perpetrators of hate crimes are people who have deliberately constructed a false theology to rationalize and justify their prejudice. These people think they're doing God a favor by persecuting the group they hate. These are the most violent and the lethal haters. And this was Saul. Blaise Pascal once once said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Saul was zealous for God, but his zeal was without knowledge. It's easy to hate people that you don't know and don't understand. But that's about to change for Saul, for he's about to make a new acquaintance. (laughs) Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he hit the deck. He fell to the ground. Some artists depict Saul on horseback, and the bright light knocks him out of the saddle. Whether Saul was on horseback or on foot, he was definitely riding his high horse. Is a long fall to the ground for a proud rabbi like Saul. He's headed to knock off Christians. Instead, he gets knocked off. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, we learn later that this voice was Jesus. But notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Why are you persecuting my church? No. He says, why are you persecuting, persecuting me? You see, implied is that any attack on the church is in reality an assault against our Lord. Hey, you can't pick on my wife without involving me, buddy. And in the same way, you can't hurt the bride of Christ without upsetting the groom. Jesus takes it personally. Verse 5, and Saul said, who are you, Lord? One of my favorite movies is Big Jake. Anybody like Big Jake? Anybody seen Big Jake? Yeah. You and I are the only John Wayne fans in a whole crowd this week. Good grief. I love John Wayne movies. They're all the same, but they're great. They're all great. And in Big Jake, I really like the end of the movie. It's when the villain, Richard Boone, and, and there's never been a better villain. It's when Richard Boone gets shot, and he looks up at John Wayne, and he says, who are you? And Wayne says, Jacob McCandles. And he's surprised. He says, I thought you was dead. And that's when the old Duke replies, not hardly. I can't do it justice. As a matter of fact, I'll just play it for you. 
come close, mister, but no cigar. <laughs> he gets a bad guy again. Isn't it amazing? But this is how I hear the conversation here in Acts chapter 9. I mean, Saul thought that Jesus was dead. But big Jesus knocks a little rabbi off his high horse. And he says, not hardly. I love it. Well, then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You see, the goads were cattle prodders. They were sharp pokers. When a cow went astray, the, the guy would take the stick and poke him in the back and get them back in line. And this illustrates the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives. You can't stray from God without getting a poke from the Holy Spirit. He prods you back in line. See, Saul was trying to stamp out publicly the very thing that haunted him privately. Stephen's joy, his peace in the throes of death, the glory he radiated. This was all that Saul had wanted. Yet Stephen had obtained it apart from Judaism. His savior was the man Israel had labeled a blasphemer. Saul couldn't shake the spirit's prodding. I'm telling you, if you're running from the Holy Spirit, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, a futile, that's a futile thing you're doing. You're not going to escape him. He's going to track you down, man. He's going to tree you. He's going to get you. You know, usually we think of Christianity's most vocal critics and most violent opponents as the hardest nuts to crack, yet they're the ones that may be closest to salvation. See, if they didn't sense the Holy Spirit's prodding and poking and conviction, they would be ambivalent toward Christianity. But like Saul, their resistance is actually their way of kicking against the goads. Verse 6, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And here is the proof of the genuineness of any Christian conversion. It's the cry, Lord, what do you want me to do? Not, Lord, here's what I want done. Lord, here's what I want you to do. No, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you're saved, you'll want to serve. And notice too, Saul is here trembling. He's been fighting against God and he's beaten now. He's finally surrendered. He's trembling before the Lord. Have you been fighting against God? Friend, let me tell you, an unconditional surrender is all that's going to bring you peace. And when Saul does surrender, Jesus begins to give him his marching orders. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now notice, Jesus instructs us one step at a time. You know, so often we want the whole plan. But you haven't even done what Jesus asked you to do. Go into the city. Follow step one, and then God will give you step two. Before Saul obeys step 
The rest of the plan, he has to obey step one. He has to go to the city. Once he gets there, then he'll be told. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. God's revelation had acted like a camera. When the light hit his eyes, the shutter closed. It didn't reopen until the image had time to develop. God had blinded Saul, then kept him in the dark room for three days so the memory of the light of Christ would be forever etched into his mind. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, again, God is at work on both ends of this meeting. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. A street that still exists in Damascus. It's actually the east-west corridor that runs through the city center. The instructions continue. And on the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And here's another proof of the genuineness of Saul's conversion. For when you truly meet Jesus, you'll want to talk to him, won't you? You'll want to pray. And in a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You can just feel Ananias' reluctance here. Saul had a reputation. I mean, this would be like God calling you to witness to the man who murdered your family. This was how the church saw Saul. He was a terrorist. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God chose Saul, not vice versa. From the outset, God had a mission for Saul. He would preach to Gentiles and kings and Jews. And everything in Saul's life had prepared him for his mission. He'd been born a Jew, yet raised in a Gentile city of Tarsus. That means he spoke Hebrew and Greek. He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish rabbi. He knew Greek culture, Roman law, and Hebrew theology. Paul moved easily among Gentiles and Jews, among the pious and the pagan, among princes and paupers, among scholars and servants. And he was bound to suffer. He had been ordained to suffer. Ironically, the biggest persecutor of Christians was to be the most persecuted of Christians. Saul will suffer much for Jesus' sake. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Isn't that amazing? That is so cool. What a token of God's grace. Ananias calling Saul brother affirmed God's pardon and acceptance. And you know, and this is what Christian fellowship does. When we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We solidify our identity in Christ. We reinforce who we, who we believe we are, who we really are in Christ. When we treat each other as family, we become part of the family. We feel part of the family. Then Ananias tells him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice here, Saul is a brother, but he's not yet filled with the Spirit. Again, a Christian can be indwelled by the Spirit, but not filled with the Spirit. And as in Samaria, here the baptism of the Spirit occurred subsequent to Saul's conversion. Verse 18, And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. The blinding light that Saul saw on the road to Damascus may have caused a scabbing over of his eyes. This was likely a reoccurring infection that plagued him his whole life. It may have flared up on his first missionary journey to Galatia. You remember in Galatians 4 verse 15, Paul said to the church that they loved him so much they would have given him their eyes. Some folks believe that this was his thorn in the flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, a victim of trachoma develops a pus over the eyes that makes the eyelashes brittle, and they can dig into the eyeball like little thorns. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. I mean, he'd been fasting the last three days. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Amazing. He's now using his knowledge of Scripture to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. The chief antagonist of the faith is now its main proponent. Now, most New Testament scholars place Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, between Acts chapter 9, verse 21 and 22, in order to get the chronology of Paul's early ministry. In Galatians, Paul says that after his conversion, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. After his conversion, Paul left Damascus and he retreated to the Arabian desert, possibly Mount Sinai, to sort of rethink his whole theology. He spent time reconciling what the Old Testament taught of the Messiah with the work of Jesus. See, on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. But it was in solitude that Jesus revealed himself in Paul. Paul later wrote of the gospel that he preached, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul got the crucial elements of his faith, not from some school, or from some human teacher, or from some podcast, but from God himself. He had been God-taught 
the gospel that he preached. Now, at the end of verse 22, Saul is winning arguments, but he's not winning any souls. He has the right message, but he has the wrong audience. God wanted him to target the Gentiles. He had been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, not the Jews. And here's proof for the Jews reject him. They send a hit squad to ambush him. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. What a letdown for Saul. Saw that coming, didn't you? He loved the Jews, but he had failed to reach them with the gospel. I guess you could say that in this point in his life, Saul felt like a real basket case. What a humiliating way for this once proud rabbi to have to depart from Damascus in a basket under the cover of night over the wall. You know, this also meant that Saul was not a big man. He fit into a basket. There's a third century novel. It's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla that give the following description of Saul. He was small in size with meeting eyebrows with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace. For at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. You remember the, the latter here is what was said of Stephen in Acts 6, verse 15. You remember that he had the face of an angel? See, Saul had coveted the peace and the joy in the Spirit's presence that he saw in Stephen, now he radiates that same glory that he had witnessed in Stephen. He too has found Jesus. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. And who can blame them? I mean, Saul, Rabbi Saul, had been public enemy number one. But Barnabas, and the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. It took Barnabas, he took him and he brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas goes to bat for Saul. He convinces the Jerusalem church to welcome him into their ranks. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Saul's always getting into trouble. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, you get into a little trouble. When the brethren, that is the apostles, found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him out to Tarsus. Put him on a boat, sent him home. It was another letdown for Saul. And we know elsewhere in the New Testament that Saul spent the next seven years in his hometown of Tarsus, perhaps feeling like a failure. He'd been unsuccessful in his attempts to reach the Jews in either Damascus or Jerusalem. And here's a vital lesson. Fruitful ministry takes the right man at the right place at the right time. See, Saul was the right man. He was God's man. But he wasn't yet in the right place, and it wasn't the right time. Saul was trying to minister for God 
Before that would happen, God wanted to minister to Saul. He was impatient. Soon he'll find success, but not with the Jews, with the Gentiles. Verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. But notice the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. The gospel's now spread. Their chief antagonist had been converted. And for a moment, the Jerusalem church is experiencing a peace and a growth. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Saul is not quite ready for the ministry God has for him. So the scene now shifts back to the exploits of Peter. And that's what we'll study next Sunday. So read ahead. Read chapters 9 and 10 next week for next